0: Alligator said, Rabbit, Rabbit, I think that song you're singing is nothing but a lie.
1: And cap sleeves, an evening gown covered all over in dark purple sequins that shimmer purple, blue, silver, black under the lights.
2: It's time for the Apple Seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales and personal tales and fairy tales and historical tales and more. And today, we got a great hour for you. You know, one of the most prevalent traditions in storytelling around the world is the trickster story right it's always so much fun to watch anansi the spider pull one over on lion or some other critter and it's fun to hear about tom sawyer as he cons the other boys into doing his chores trickster stories exist in every culture as tricksters lay traps however Sometimes they find that they end up being the one caught in the trap. And in today's stories, we're going to get to see tricksters at work fooling other people... And getting fooled themselves and even by themselves. You're going to hear stories from Dolores Hydock. She's going to tell us a story called "It Could Happen," and uh, Tim Lowry is going to tell us a story called "Coyote and the Bluebirds." And speaking of that Tim Lowry story, it's from a collection called "Folk Tales from Around the World," and you can hear another story from that same collection in today's Appleseed Extra. You can find Appleseed Extras at uh, byuradio.org Appleseed, or by Googling the Appleseed Podcast and subscribing. An Appleseed Extra is a mini episode of the show, just a few minutes long, in case you only have a few minutes, and you want to fill those few minutes with a great story. And again, you'll hear a terrific Tim Lowry story on today's Appleseed Extra. So subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, uh, to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be Joined by Kendra Hanna, one of our assistant producers. Kendra, it's great to have you with me today.
3: It's great to be here with you.
2: And we're going to listen to an old tale. There are a lot of versions of this tale. This is a great one. Tell me about the rabbit and the alligators.
4: All right. So this is the story of a trickster rabbit who is so lazy and he wants to cross this river, but he doesn't want to go all the way around. (laughs) So he decides to pull a little prank on the alligators that live there. To make a little bridge for
2: it. Yeah, I personally, if it were me, I don't think I'm messing with alligators, right? Me
4: neither. <laughs> <laughs> but rabbit thinks differently.
2: <laughs> this is this is Mary Hamilton with a story called The Rabbit and the Alligators. It's gonna delight you, and we're happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. <laughs>
0: A long time ago, a long, long, long time ago, way back, when rabbits had long, pretty tails like fox, there lived a rabbit. Now this rabbit was on his way home. He had been gone since early, early in the morning and now it was late, late in the afternoon and Rabbit was so tired. Oh, Rabbit had been working and working and then walking and walking and Rabbit was so tired that he didn't think he could even take one more hop. And it was just about then that Rabbit came to the edge of the swamp. Well, Rabbit stood there And Rabbit looked at that swamp, and Rabbit said, Oh, I don't know why this old swamp has to be between me and my house. I don't have the energy to walk around this swamp. I got to find myself some way of getting from here to the other side of this swamp. Well, I could just swim across it, but if I do, well, those old alligators that live out in that swamp, they eat anything swimming in that swamp. Those old alligators would come along, and they would just eat me up. Well, I'm too tired to walk, so what I need is a plan, a plan for getting me from here to the other side of this swamp. And so, rabbit stood there, and rabbit started thinking. Well, oh, rabbit thought, and rabbit thought, And Rabbit thought, and then, Rabbit, well, Rabbit had himself a plan, a plan for getting from where he was to the other side of that swamp. Now, what Rabbit needed to work his plan was an alligator. So Rabbit stood there on the edge of that swamp, and he started watching for an alligator. And it wasn't long before one big old alligator started swimming around fairly close to Rabbit out in that swamp. And Rabbit saw that alligator and Rabbit started working his plan. It began with a little song. Rabbit was making it up and went just like this. Oh, there are many, 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 many rabbits in this world. No, so very few alligators. Rabbits, 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 rabbits everywhere. As for alligators. They just can't, can't, um, compare with the many, 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 many rabbits in this world. No, so very few alligators. Rabbits, rabbits, rabbits everywhere under the sun. As for alligators, and that alligator swam right up, and that alligator said, Rabbit, rabbit, what's that song you're singing? And rabbit said, "Why, oh, alligator, why, oh, alligator, I didn't see you swimming out there. <laughs> that song, Why? That's just a song that all us rabbits learn. Mm -hmm. We learn it when we're just little bitty babies. It's taught to all of us. I'm singing for you, Alligator Goes Like This. There are many, 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 many rabbits in this world. No so very few alligators. Rabbits, 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 everywhere in the sun. As for alligators, you can hardly find a one. There are many, 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 many many rabbits in this world. Alligator said, Rabbit, I don't want to hear any more of the song. Now, rabbit, what do you mean that's a song that all you rabbits learn when you're just little babies? And rabbit said, well, it's, it's true, alligator. We do. We, we learn that song when we're nothing but little bitty babies. You know, it's a song. It tells us about how many rabbits there are in the world and, well, and how many alligators there are in the world. And alligator said, rabbit, rabbit, do you mean to tell me that you believe that song you were singing is true? And rabbit said, Well, alligator, I I, I never really thought about whether or not the song is true, but, but yeah, yeah, I guess it is true. I mean, I learned it when I was just a little bitty baby, and well, all us rabbits were all taught to sing that song, and we're all taught to tell the truth. And alligator said, rabbit, rabbit, I think that song you're singing is nothing but a lie. Well, I live out here in this swamp and I see alligators all the time and I hardly ever see any rabbits. Yes, rabbit, I believe you've been singing nothing but a lie. And rabbit said, alligator, do you really think so? I mean, do you think that song is a lie? Well, alligator, when I was little, I not only learned that song, but I learned that a rabbit is always supposed to be honest, honest, honest. Mm-hmm. Cross my heart, hope to die, never tell a lie, honest. So I tell you what, alligator, well, if you'd like for me to, I'll count all the alligators, and if we find out that that song's telling a lie, well, I'll go tell all the rabbits that they've got to stop singing that song because that song just is not true. And alligator said, rabbit. Rabbit, you do that, you count the alligators, then you go tell the other rabbits they can't sing that song. And rabbit said, well, alligator, I would, because the rabbit is always supposed to be honest. Well, now alligator really wanted to be counted. So Alligator called all the other alligators up and told all the alligators all about the song he heard Rabbit sing and how Rabbit had agreed to count to find out whether or not that song was true. And those other alligators, well, they all wanted to be counted too. So that first alligator came up to Rabbit and said, Rabbit, we're all here and we're all ready. You can begin the count. Well, Rabbit looked out at those alligators and Rabbit said, Now, Alligator, I'm willing to count. I told you I would and I will, but. If I'm going to do this count and I'm going to report the results to the rabbits, well, we got to be sure this count done fair. And the way you all are out there, I mean, you're just swimming around and milling around. I'm liable to count one of you over there, and you're liable to dive under. Come up over here, and I'd be counting you again. Mm-mm. If we're going to do this count, we got to be sure this count is done fair. So if you expect me to do the count and an alligator, what you and all your other alligators have got to do is you've got to line up side by side by side by side. And then you've got to hold still, and then I'll do the count. Well, now, those alligators really wanted to be counted. So they lined up side by side by side by side all the way across that swamp. And then they held still. And that first alligator said, All right, Rabbit, we're ready to be counted. You can begin the count now. And rabbit, well, rabbit, hopped out on that first alligator's back and he called out one. And he hopped on that second alligator's back and he called out two. And he hopped on that next one, three, four, five, six, seven, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. Alligator after alligator after alligator after alligator till rabbit was all the way on the other side of that swamp and when rabbit landed on the back of that last alligator well rabbit was so proud of himself because his plan had worked and he felt so good about tricking those alligators that he was laughing and he was laughing so hard that he didn't even call out a number when he landed on that last alligator's back and when rabbit landed on that dry land well he was laughing and he was laughing and that last alligator well that last alligator looked over at rabbit and he said rabbit Rabbit. Rabbit, I don't even think you called out a number when you landed on my back, rabbit. Rabbit. Rabbit, what's so funny, rabbit? Why are you laughing, rabbit? And rabbit, well, rabbit was laughing, and rabbit said, Oh, alligator. how many rabbits there are in this world. He said, I just stood over on the other side of the swamp and made up that song. I wanted to see if I could trick you alligators into lining up and making a bridge to help me get across this swamp because I was just too tired to walk around. (laughs) My trick worked too and I'm feeling so good. I got lots of energy now and you alligators, you just all lined up and rabbit laughed and rabbit laughed. Well, that alligator That alligator didn't much like the idea of rabbit tricking all those other alligators. So that alligator came charging out of that water, mouth wide open. Rabbit looked up just in time and gave one big hop, but that alligator brought his mouth down. And rabbit, well, rabbit's hop was big, but not quite big enough. And you know that long, pretty tail I told you about? Well, that alligator got rabbit's long, pretty tail. And from that day to this, rabbit, all rabbits have been going through this world carrying nothing but that little bitty stub of a tail that they carry on them today. (laughs)
2: The story is The Rabbit and the Alligators, told for you by Mary Hamilton. I've been listening to it, not only with you, but with Kendra Hanna, one of our assistant producers. Kendra, I love that story, i got to tell you.
4: Me too. I think it is so fun, and I think it's so funny. And just telling that sometimes the pranks we pull can come back to bite us in the rear, (laughs) sometimes literally.
2: (laughs) That's right. And so this becomes an example of... Uh, Well, of a couple of different things, right? First of all, uh, a trickster story, and the rabbit is such a great, trickster character right absolutely and there are trickster characters like rabbit all over the world there's anansi the spider there's coyote is often a trickster there's all all kinds of trickster characters in storytelling traditions all over the world and rabbit is a great one and the other thing that's interesting about this story of course is that it winds up being kind of a poor story right these stories poor of course Uh, uh, stories about how things came to be the way they are, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So you've got this story about how the rabbit came to have that little bitty tail that the rabbit has instead of that long, luxurious tail. And you can teach uh, a listener a lesson, right? A teller can teach a listener a lesson by pointing to a rabbit and saying, did, you ever, did I ever tell you about how that that rabbit got the tail that he's got? You don't want
3: you, that to happen to you. That You
2: don't want that to happen to you. That's right. So you get the benefit of a poor tail and a trickster tail and... Kind of a cautionary tale, and of course the rabbit crosses the swamp, but at what price? I think I'm back to where I started out at the beginning, which is, as for me, alligators, I'm not messing with them. <laughs> <laughs> me neither. Kendra, thanks for joining me for that great Mary Hamilton story. Thank you. There's a lot more to come here on the Appleseed.
3: You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
0: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
2: It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today on The Apple Seed. A moment ago, you heard Mary Hamilton's telling of Rabbit and the Alligators, a story uh, introduced to us uh, by Kendra Hanna, one of our assistant producers. And there's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story called It Could Happen by the wonderful storyteller Dolores Hydock. And you'll hear a folk tale called Coyote and the Bluebirds from the Tim Lowry Collection, folk tales from around the world. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story in you that you might share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. We thought we'd share a memory here. It's a memory of mine about a beloved pet, my old cat, Patches. You got a beloved pet in your life? Maybe this story will bring that pet to mind. It's today's entry in the Radio Family.
0: The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
2: I visited an old friend a while ago in the hours before her father passed away. Her father was a good friend, too, and that's why I was there. She was at her dad's apartment watching and waiting with him in those last close, intimate hours of his life. And I went to support them both. And when I went by to visit them, I was welcomed into the embrace of their living room by a purring cat winding itself around my leg, an orange cat with tiger stripes. And I hadn't seen my friend for many years, but I remembered that they had had just such a cat when we were younger. And I said, well, this cat looks just like old Brigham. And my friend said, he ought to. That is Brigham. (laughs) Well, good heavens, this was the cat that I remembered from those days when I was, well, not quite a kid, but years ago. Years ago. You know what I mean. Now, the visit was a special one. It was the last time I'd see my friend's dad alive. And when the visit was over, as I drove away from the parking lot of the apartment, my brain was flooded with memories, memories of our adventures together, my family and that family. and Oddly enough, with memories of Patches. Now, Patches was a scrawny little black-and-white kitten when he first wandered into our lives. I was just a tiny kid, and my dad had found him somewhere, a stray that he thought we boys might give a good home. And we loved that cat. And he kind of became my cat. I don't know if you know how that feels, but other brothers had other pets. Joe had a little tortoiseshell cat named Mouse, of all things. Dave had a gopher snake named Smaug, and Joshua had a billy goat named JB. JB stood for Joshua's billy goat. So Patches somehow became kind of mine. Though that's really a loose term, mine, because as far as Patches was concerned, he didn't belong to anybody. He hung around with us because he liked us, but he was his own cat. He owned himself. My dad would see him curled up by the big heater in the living room on a fall morning, and he'd point and say, That's not a tame cat. Oh boy, we knew it. We neutered him and got him shots and checkups and we fed him, but he lived his own life. Patches would come indoors after a good carouse in our little country town, and we'd see a nick in his ear after what surely had been a tussle with some stray. Well, Patches was a good mouser, and more than a match for any of the neighborhood dogs. That cat was in charge of security at our place, and he knew it. And he was as fast as lightning, making daredevil runs across our small-town street, even in the face of cars barreling down on him. Always a step ahead, he seemed to be. And every cold night, if he'd accidentally been left outside, he knew where my second-floor bedroom was. So I can't count the number of times I got home from a school dance or a date or a night out for pizza with my pals, settled down beneath my covers, and then I'd hear patches pawing squeakily at my bedroom window. The window was close enough to my bed that I didn't even have to get out of bed to let him in. I'd just roll over, flip the latch on the window, slide it open, and he'd jump through, purring, pawing at my blanket, circling a few times and then settling down with me for a good sleep. Cats, dogs, goats, and snakes would come and go at our house, but Patches remained. He watched me graduate from elementary school and start to catch the bus for junior high, and then high school. He saw me start to drive a car. He saw me head off to college. And then, finally, one day, on a visit home from school to do a couple loads of laundry, we found Patches wounded. Conscious, but unable to stand. He'd been too slow, or a car too quick, or a dog too tough. We we still don't know exactly what happened, but there he was, the one constant of my childhood, at what would be the end of his swashbuckling life. We called the vet who came running, but it was all over for Patches. I sat with him until he was gone, and then I found a place Away, a place alone. And I kind of broke open. I cried good and hard for a long time. I was eighteen. And then, within hours of that first rush of grief, came a rush of stories. I circled up with the folks I loved, the folks who loved patches, and we told tales. Now, patches was always gonna go away. I always knew that, but, If you've had a cat like that, or a dog, if you're a dog person, or a bearded dragon lizard, if you're a bearded dragon lizard person, then you know. You know how you bring something like that into your life because it's just the cutest thing you've ever seen, never thinking about the way your lives will entwine, grow together. But they do, don't they? I know my friend's cat, Brigham, is still around. He shows up on Facebook from time to time. He's going to go, I guess, sometime. And when he does, she'll turn to her loved ones, and they'll listen as the stories rush out.
0: The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
2: Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. If you have a beloved pet that you'd like to talk about, open your mouth. Animal stories, pet stories can make great stories around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of sharing can make for memories that last a lifetime. In just a few minutes, you're going to hear a story from the great Alabama storyteller Dolores Hyduck, a story called It Could Happen, and Tim Lowry's coming up, too, with Coyote and the Bluebirds. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through passing them on, telling to telling, through the things that we see on screen or the things we read in great books or the things we experience in terrific songs. And of course, some of the most important stories, some of the most memorable stories in our lives come to us through interactions with the great food of our family. And here to talk with me about food stories a little bit is our producer, Jeff Simpson. Jeff, it's great to have you with me. Great to be here. Surprise! Surprise! You're talking food, and look who's here. <laughs> Ain't it the way? Ain't it the way? <laughs> well, you've got a favorite food that you want to talk a little bit about. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. My mouth is already watering. I well, gotta say. I don't
4: want to tell you what it is right away because I want to take a little bit of time getting there. I want you to earn this, Sam. <laughs> and. Uh, for in my family growing up, Thanksgiving was such a magical time, Oh yeah, you know, where anything could happen, even though we did the same exact thing every year. Right. <laughs> my dad would come pick us up early from school, you know, and there's that sense of pride. Oh, I get to get out before all my peers. <laughs> and he would pack our big Dodge van in a way that. All the suitcases would be on the bottom. Then he would pad it with pillows and blankets. Oh, yeah. Back in the day, you know, when you didn't have to worry as much about safety. <laughs> and without being judged too harshly, you could just lay down for the entire trip. That's right. So we would take the four-hour drive from Anaheim, California, to Fresno. And on the way, we would, we would pull out the summer sausage and Trisket crackers and pop open the soda cans while we're listening to... The coasters with songs like Charlie Brown and Love Potion Number 9 just on the tape deck. I have such fond memories of that. What I did not love, and, you know, this is a source of much laughter on the way to grandmother's house, was the smell of the manure that we would inevitably come across on the way to Fresno. Oh, as
2: you pass the— Right.
4: But the greatest juxtaposition of that, Sam, is when you would get to grandma's house— You would open that front door, and the first thing that you could smell was you just knew on her stove there was this big pot of chicken noodle soup that was heating up and just waiting for you to indulge in, right? And you could smell all the ingredients, the chicken, the salt in the broth— And when you just slurped into that first bite, it went down so smoothly. And you got to be careful not to eat it too hot because then you can't taste anything for the rest of Thanksgiving. That's
2: right. Yeah, you take one bite of soup that's too hot and it ruins the rest of the bowl. Right, but the journey wasn't even over
4: there because you knew that beyond the kitchen in the laundry room, there were two uh freshly baked pumpkin pies that oh, were just cooling man. and you but you did have to wait for those unfortunately <laughs> until Thanksgiving. And then if you went out that back door, you knew that grandma's big orange tree was just sitting there with these big giant oranges ready for you to dig into. And uh man, when I think of Thanksgiving at grandma's house, I think about all The great mouth-watering food that just made it so
2: much of an experience and such a magical experience. Really, it's so interesting. You know, one of the things that you said that it's that it's a time that promises all kinds of magic. Even though the same thing happens every time, right? Right. Anything
4: <laughs> could happen, but it'll be the same things.
2: But you love that. You, you love, love those having things. those routines as a kid. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what a lovely comment on your grandmother that she's paying attention to when you left the house. She's paying attention to how long it takes you to get there so that by the time you get there, she's got the pot of soup ready to oh, go. Oh, yeah. That's marvelous. Yeah. Is
4: there a particular dish whether from your grandma or in, in your home, that is just kind of the staple holiday dish that every time you'd get together,
2: you just couldn't wait to get into? <laughs> well, my, my, my mother's parents mm-hmm. uh, made a lot of Greek food. Yeah. Right? And so I remember the, the, the equivalent of what you're talking about is showing up at grandma's house to the smell of freshly baking baklava.
4: Oh, and
2: uh, yeah, and, and not everybody likes baklava, but I love it, and uh, <laughs> and and I, I of course, it's it's a part of my life from the time I was a little child. But there's something that you said about walking into your grandmother's house and even. The, that, the familiar smell of that chicken soup, you know. I mean, there are places that I've, you know, doors that I've walked into and there's a particular smell in that room that's such a potent trigger for a memory, you know. I know that if I walked in to a room that smelled like my grandma's house did... I would I would recognize that smell even though my grandmother moved from that house when I was a teenager, you know, yeah. and it would put me right back at her at her house.
4: And you know, other than food, you know, I love talking about movies too, and it really reminds me of that scene in at the end of Ratatouille, <laughs> when that very stiff, uh, you know, upper nose—I don't know what you would call him—this <laughs> this food critic that yeah. you know, there was nothing that you could do right for this food critic. And yet, when this very simple peasant quote peasant dish was presented to him, he took one bite of it, and you could see the camera zooming in onto his brain, and him reliving his childhood and his mother putting this plate of ratatouille in front of him, and he gets emotional That's about right. it, and then writes this, right. this this this. Uh, this glowing review of this restaurant from of this plate
2: that is presented to him by a rat that phenom- <laughs> that phenomenon is so well captured that that yes. phenomenon of of being presented with a, something to eat that is so like what you remember eating as a as a child that it takes you right back there it, oh
4: chicken it, soup it's so formative for so many people and it's it, you you
2: taste certain foods, and all of a sudden, you're home. <laughs> well, what a wonderful thing to spend just a moment, if only in memory, with Jeff's grandma's chicken soup after a long drive. What a pleasure to have you with us, Jeff. Great to be always such a pleasure to chat with Jeff Simpson, our producer. And of course, stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the telling of tales that get passed down from teller to listener, sometimes over generations, to food stories like the memory that you just heard and of course books and films and all of those things that serve as triggers for great stories and we're happy again to chat with Jeff we'll bring him back. Lots coming up we're going to hear from Dolores Haddock next with a piece called It Could Happen. You're going to enjoy it and it's coming right up I'm Sam Payne
1: You're listening to The Appleseed We'll be back in a moment
5: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
2: It's so great to have you with me here on The Appleseed today. I'm so delighted to share these stories with you. A moment ago, a conversation about chicken soup with Jeff Simpson, our producer, and before that, a Radio Family Journal entry about beloved pets, my friend Sarah's cat, Brigham, and my old cat, Patches. Maybe you have a beloved old pet in your life, too, one that's either with us or not, but whether they're with us or not, the stories remain, don't they? Coming up, a story from Dolores Hyduck. This is an encounter with Dolores' sister who tries to convince her to let go of the past, by getting rid of the abundance of neglected cooking items littering the kitchen. Come with us as Dolores takes us on a journey through her imagined future in which each and every item features prominently because you never know when your dreams will suddenly become reality. Here's Dolores Hidalgo with It Could Happen here on The Apple Seed.
1: My sister Lisa came to visit me from her home in Denver. We were making supper, and she looked in the cabinet next to the stove for a saucepan. Why do you still have this, she said, pulling out a large clay pot cooker. I don't know if any of you have ever seen a clay pot cooker. It's like a rectangular flour pot with a lid. It's unglazed terracotta. You soak it in water before you put the ingredients in, and then you put it in a cold oven, and as the heat rises, the steam coming out of the sides of the pot makes whatever you are cooking in that pot incredibly moist and delicious. In fact, she said, why do you have two of these? <laughs> a second clay pot cooker, a little smaller than the first, was held up accusingly in the air. Well, what are you doing with these? a pair of metal French bread pans clattered onto the tile floor. Oh, you've got to be kidding me, she said, extracting a large oval pewter serving tray from the very back of the cabinet. Suspicious now, she walked over to a wall of cabinets, began opening doors, (laughs) examining shelves, (laughs) liberating muffin tins, rolls of parchment paper, sets of cookie cutters, mixing bowls, an array of small kitchen electrics that made a little Martha Stewart mountain right there in the middle of the kitchen floor. This is worse than I thought, she said. She looked at the bread machine, the four Dutch ovens, the percolator, the immersion blender, the two food processors, the mandoline slicer, the martini shaker. You used to cook, she said. You used to cook all the time. You hardly ever cook anymore. Why are you holding on to all this stuff? This is all part of your past. You need to release it. You need to let it go. You need to move on. I know. I said, I know, I know. You're right. You're right. I will. I will. I I don't want to take time to do that now. That's what I said. I knew it was a lie. I knew I wasn't getting rid of any of that stuff because I was moving on, moving on into a rich as yet undefined future, a future full of fabulous possibilities, a future where every one of those objects had an essential role to play, and I wasn't letting any of it get away from me. (laughs) That clay pot cooker? That clay pot cooker was not still there in the cabinet because I was holding on to the memory of dinner parties I used to have in the 1980s when the the fall-off-the-bone-tender five-spiced chicken that came out of that pot and the homemade blueberry trifle that followed it fueled lively discussions. Five, six, seven good friends gathered around my dining room table, a table littered with wadded-up dinner napkins and mismatched salad plates. The conversation witty and sparkling as we dissected politics, 19th century literature, movies we just seen. No, that clay pot cooker was not there because of a role it had played in my past. It was there because of a role it might play in the future. <laughs> a terracotta container for the promise that one day, one day, I might again be the kind of person who has dinner parties. <laughs> The kind of person who has time to clean the house and cook and iron eight cloth dinner napkins. The kind of person who has eight cloth dinner napkins and knows where they are. The kind of person who has a spice rack, an alphabetized spice rack. And on that rack there will be a little jar of five spice powder that is not old enough to vote. The kind of person who remembers how to make blueberry trifle layered with homemade whipped cream. Not the stuff that splurts out of a red aerosol can, no. No, the real stuff, the good stuff, the stuff you whip yourself. And blueberries harvested from my own edible garden. A trifle that will shimmer in a footed crystal trifle bowl that has to stay in the cabinet above the refrigerator, even though it hasn't been used since the Carter administration. (laughs) That trifle bowl is not there because of trifles it has held in the past. It's there because of trifles it might hold in the future. Because one day, one day, I might, again, be the kind of person who has the patience to make my own whipped cream. (laughs) The kind of person whose blueberry bushes do not die a slow, tragic, pathetic death. The kind of person who has seven good friends to whom I could say, hey, come over Friday night. We'll have five spice chicken and blueberry trifle, and they will show up with smiles and stories and bottles of wine. (laughs) It could happen. It's possible. So the clay pot cooker has to stay. So do the cookie cutters a set of holiday cookie cutters that take plain rolled out dough and transform it into snowmen and stars and hearts and Santas and bunnies, usually iced and pink and red and green and white frosting. Those cookie cutters are not still there because of holidays past when there were small children in my life, remote children, true, far away nieces and nephews who rarely came to visit, but when they did, when they did, they loved making Purple snowmen and green hearts and bright blue Santas and orange bunnies. And those cookie cutters have to stay not because I am holding on to the memory of Cookie's past, but because I am open to the possibility of Cookie's future. I am open to the possibility that one day, one day... There might again be small children in my life, great nieces and great nephews, who might one day be born, even though my current crop of nieces and nephews show no inclination whatsoever of wanting to dive into the gene pool, even though they are in their late 30s and time is running out. <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> Those great nieces and great nephews might be born and when they are and get to be four, five, six years old, a package will arrive in St. Louis or Seattle or San Francisco or wherever they're living then. Oh, a package. Oh, look, it's from Alabama. Oh, it's from weird old great Aunt Dolores. And in that package, there will be cookies cut out in shapes appropriate to the season, iced in colors of frosting that are inappropriate to the season. And a week later, there will be, magnetically attached to my refrigerator door, a crayon drawing of a child standing next to a house that tilts slightly to one side, (laughs) gray smoke curling up out of the chimney a lollipop of a tree in the front yard. And the child in the drawing will be holding an orange bunny almost as large as the child herself. And across the top of that drawing, in colorful block letters, it will say, thank you, Aunt D. And the D will be written backwards. (laughs) It could happen. It's possible. So the cookie-cutters stay. They're on the shelf above the cellar steps in the big Tupperware box right behind the bottles of rum and tequila. <laughs> the three quarters full bottles of rum and tequila that haven't been opened in 15 years, but they have to stay. Not because I'm holding on to the memory of Margarita's past, but because I am open to the possibility of Margarita's future. I am holding open to the possibility that one day, one day... I might be the kind of person who invites the neighbors over for Cinco de Mayo, which will fall not on a Friday like it does this year, but on a Sunday. And I will invite all the neighbors to come over, all these beautiful neighbors who live in the houses around me. I will invite them to come over on a Sunday afternoon, nothing fancy, bring the kids, and they will show up a little shy these wonderful neighbors. And we'll gather there on my breezy front porch. No, Josiah, no, honey, I don't think the cat likes jalapeno peppers, no. (laughs) they will all be there these beautiful young neighbors who start the lawnmower for me when i can't yank the chain hard enough to get it going the first time in april who pick up my mail when i go out of town who wave at me on my morning walk as they head off to work in a sputtering vw van that has a little sticker pasted on the side window a sticker that says all visitors must report to the principal's office These are the neighbors who are raising the children whose voices call out in a high sweet song as they ride their bikes up and down the street. The children who sell sprigs of rosemary and stems of black-eyed Susans that they've cut from their mother's garden, sell them for one dollar a piece from a flower stand they've made out of a big cardboard box. And when I say to them, what are you going to do with all that money? They say, we want to go to Idaho and ride the horses. (laughs) And so even though I have rosemary and black-eyed Susans growing in my own garden, I buy $5 worth because it's going to take a lot of black-eyed Susans to get them all the way to Idaho. (laughs) But before they make that cross-country trip, there might come a day a cinco de mayo day when i invite them and their parents to come over for tacos and i will make daiquiris and margaritas for the grown-ups and limeade for the kids because i love having these beautiful young families living around me i love that there are children in the neighborhood children that i do not have to feed or clothe or help with science projects (laughs) And I love that on the rare occasions when it snows, the flower stand gets flattened into a cardboard sled, and I get to stand there in the window of the room that's my office and watch them sliding down the driveway, little Michelin men in their puffy coats, (laughs) leaving behind purple mittens that blossom like crocuses in the snow when their mother calls them back inside. I watch them from the window of the room that is my office, the room that has a spare closet. And in that closet, on the third shelf, there is a long thin box. And in that box, there is an evening gown, (laughs) a full length evening gown with a little train and a boat neck and cap sleeves. An evening gown covered all over in dark purple sequins that shimmer purple, blue, silver, black under the lights. An evening gown that I wore to the grand reopening of the Lyric Theater. Some of you were there. The Lyric Theater, vaudeville-era theater in downtown Birmingham that has been beautifully, lovingly restored. And some of you remember, there was going to be this grand reopening celebration, three nights, music and comedy review, where I was going to be one of the MCs. I want you to wear something that looks like you're a presenter at the Oscars, the director had said. And so I bought that purple sequin gown with a little train that the other MCs stepped on every time we walked out on stage. And now that evening gown is wrapped in acid-free tissue paper and it is resting in that long thin cardboard box, not because I am holding on to the memory of that event past, but because I am open to the possibility of events future. I am open to the possibility that one day, one day, I might be the kind of person who gets invited to the kind of thing where you can wear a purple sequin evening gown, a gala at the Museum of Art, or an awards ceremony at the country club, and I will float in, in my purple sequins, looking fabulous, (laughs) thanks to a pair of stratospherically high and yet miraculously comfortable shoes, (laughs) and an industrial strength layer of Spanx. (laughs) happened <laughs> it's possible so the evening gown stays there in the box on the third shelf of that closet where one shelf up on the second shelf there's another box a box covered in pale pink satin fabric with a darker pink satin bow on the lid a box that contains lacy bits of lingerie that I am keeping <laughs> Because one day, (laughs) okay that's never going to happen, that box can go. (laughs) Down in the cellar there is a caulk gun, PVC pipe cutters, a hacksaw, a set of socket wrenches, a container of 50, okay 47 bungee cords cans of mineral spirits and turpentine, a set of eight screwdrivers of varying lengths, and they all have to stay. Because one day, one day, I might be the kind of person who has the time and inclination and hand-eye coordination to do crafts. (laughs) To make mosaic birdhouses or a set of decorative concrete stepping stones without having to go get seven stitches or a tetanus shot. The kind of person who will freeze dry my own hydrangea blossoms. The kind of person who will make garden totems out of thrift store teapots and whimsical animal sculptures out of PVC pipe and bits of broken crockery. The kind of person who will paint the Adirondack chairs in my yard that have needed repainting for 12 years, and they will be repainted not in some solid color, no, they will be painted in a stencil design that looks vaguely Amish. And that's why all the little tubes of paint and foam brushes and stacks of cotton rags have to stay. Have to stay right there next to the unopened cans of spackle and grout sealer that are right next to the big plastic container full of Christmas decorations that haven't been looked at since 1996. (laughs) But those Christmas decorations have to stay not because I'm holding on to the memory of Christmas 1996, that Christmas went at the very last minute, four o'clock on Christmas Eve. I decided I wanted a Christmas tree after all, and the guy at the Boy Scout lot was really cold and really tired and sick of Christmas, and he gave me a good deal on a really big tree, way too big as it turns out, but hey, who knew that then? Helped me tie it on the roof of my car, which left deep scratches on the roof of my car, and when I dragged it inside, it left this trail of sap from the back door to the living room, this wet, sticky trail that looked like I was on the parade route for a battalion of slugs. (laughs) And then when I tried to haul it back out again, it left these little sharp needles all over everywhere that were really hard to vacuum up then, but wow, easy to find in bare feet in July. And even with every one of those Christmas decorations on that tree, that tree never looked pretty. That tree made Charlie Brown's tree look pretty. But I am keeping those decorations, not because of Christmas's past, but because of Christmas's future. Because one day, one day, I might be the kind of person who decorates for Christmas, who decks the hall with my heart full of joy to the world, the kind of person that has cars screeching to a stop in front of the house, honey, look at Santa waving from the roof, the kind of person who will have a big open house, everybody comes over, Bing Crosby is crooning on Spotify, the house is aromatic with cinnamon and gleaming with candlelight as I glide through the crowded rooms carrying that large oval pewter serving tray so that I can offer my guests an array of cookies, purple snowmen, green stars, bright blue Santas. It could happen, it's possible, so the Christmas decorations stay in the plastic container that is right next to the other plastic container that is full of little glass jars and little metal lids, some of which actually match, but they have to stay. Because one day, one day, I might be the kind of person who organizes all those little washers and screws and bobs that come in the box when you get a new ceiling fan or a new faucet or a new 3-in-1 printer, and you can't throw those things away. What if you need them? One day you might need them. And when you do need them, you will have no clue where they are. But if they were neatly arranged in little glass jars on the shelf there in the cellar, you would know exactly where to look. And so all those jars and lids have to stay because one day I might actually get it together and do that. It's possible. There are all kinds of things that could happen, that might happen, all kinds of hidden talents and interests that might one day suddenly reveal themselves to me, all kinds of worlds that are closed to me now, but one day might open up to me. And when they do, when those opportunities show up, not in my rear view mirror, but out there on the horizon, I'm going to be ready with all the gear I need so I can jump right in and not have to waste time shopping for supplies. It's not holding on to the past. It's staying open to possibilities for the future. It's not hoarding. It's hope. And you can never... Have too much of that.
2: It could happen. A story from the great Alabama storyteller Dolores Hyduck. And we're going to wrap up today with a story from the great storyteller Tim Lowry. In this Native American folktale, a group of playful bluebirds decides to teach a little lesson to Coyote, who's always waiting around to eat them as they play in the sky. What will happen when the little birds teach Coyote how to fly? Find out in Coyote and the Bluebirds by Tim Lowry, here on the Appleseed. Coyote and the
5: Bluebirds, an American Indian tale coyote was crouched low underneath a cactus, watching the bluebirds flying through the air. The bluebirds were playing a game. One bluebird would swoop out over the cornfield, grab a kernel of corn, and fly high into the air. He would then drop the kernel and let it fall down through the clouds, and another bluebird would swoop out and gobble up the corn before it hit the ground. As soon as the birds had finished their game, they would do it all over again. Coyote was watching the birds closely. He was not interested in their game. He did not want to eat their corn. He wanted to eat the bluebirds. Now the bluebirds pretended not to see Coyote, but they knew that he was there, and they knew that if they came down to the ground, he might try to eat them. One day the bluebirds decided to play a trick on Coyote and teach him a lesson. The bluebirds flew down to the ground and they said to Coyote, Coyote, would you like to play a game with us? Oh, yes, said Coyote. I would like that very much. Well, we always play our games in the air, said the bluebirds, so you're going to have to learn how to fly. And so we're going to give you some of our feathers because you need feathers for flying. And the bluebirds pulled out feathers and gave them to Coyote. One, two, three, four, five, six feathers. Coyote held three feathers in his front paw and three feathers in his other front paw. Now, said the bluebirds, you're ready to fly. Coyote flapped the feathers and he tried as hard as he could, but he couldn't even get off the ground. Hmm, said the bluebirds, perhaps you should learn to sing our special flying song and so they taught him the flying song. The song went like this.
3: "Ah, ah, Ah-ah, nico-see! Ah-ah, nico-see!
5: Coyote began to practice, but he wasn't a very accomplished singer. "Ah, ah, Ah-ah, nico-see! Ah-ah, nico-see! He practiced and practiced and practiced, and soon he was able to sing it properly, and he was able to flap his wings, and Coyote learned how to fly. As soon as Coyote flew up into the sky, the bluebirds all swooped around him and they said, "'Now, Coyote, we're going to play a special game, and you can play, too.' "'Watch this,' said one of the bluebirds. "'I can pull out one of my feathers and still fly away.' And he did.
3: Ah, "'Ah-ah, nico-see! Ah-ah,
5: nico-see!' Coyote thought to himself, "'Hmm, I'm not going to let these bluebirds beat me at this game.' And so he pulled out one feather too and flew away.
3: Ah ah, nico see, ah ah, nico see.
5: The second bluebird winked at his friends and said, Watch this, coyote. I can pull out two feathers and still fly away. And so he pulled out two.
3: Ah ah, nico see, ah ah, nico see.
5: Coyote was not going to be outdone by this bluebird, and so he pulled out two feathers and flew away.
3: Ah, ah, Ah-ah, nico-see! Ah-ah, nico-see!
5: The last blue bird winked with one eye at his friend and winked with his other eye at his second friend and said, Watch this, coyote. I can pull out three feathers and still fly away. And he did.
3: Ah-ah, nico-see! Ah-ah, nico-see!
5: The coyote thought to himself, I only have three feathers left, but I can't let these bluebirds win this game. And he pulled out all three feathers. And then he fell. Ah, 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 boom! And landed right on his head. And he learned a valuable lesson. Coyotes should not fly, and they should not eat bluebirds.
3: Ah, ah, see, Ah, ah, see.
2: That story is from a collection called Folk Tales from Around the World. And in today's Appleseed Extra, we'll bring you another story from that collection, a story called The Elephant's Skull. Appleseed Extras are mini episodes of the show, just a few minutes long, a single story, in case you only have a few minutes and you want to fill them with a great... Tale. You can find him at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. It's such a pleasure for me to have been with you today. Join us again on the Appleseed. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam
5: Payne, and we'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for joining us for an... A-
5: he was not interested in their game. He did not want to eat their corn. He wanted to eat the bluebirds.
3: I'm-